We're uh, delighted to have so many of you here tonight. I'm Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College, and I uh, want to welcome especially our Goucher parents and other family members who are here for the 2010 Family Welcome, Family Weekend. It's always one of my favorite events every year at the college. We always have a, a good time, and we're glad to have so many of you with us. Uh, we're very pleased tonight that uh, Judy Woodruff, a co-anchor and senior correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, is with us. Uh, I, uh, she has many distinctions, which I'll outline, but uh, just to uh, get to, to cut to the chase, Judy and her husband, Al Hunt, who uh, is a longtime outstanding Washington correspondent and friend, uh, worked for the Wall Street Journal for many years, has been seen on television analysis programs, now runs the Bloomberg News Bureau in Washington. Well, Judy Woodruff and Al Hunter gout your parents, and uh, we're glad that they've added that to their many distinctions. <laughs> Judy doesn't really need much of an introduction, but just to say a few words. You've seen her on television over the years, uh, NBC, CNN, public television. Uh, she's been on television for more than three decades. Uh, has had a long and distinguished journalism career, which began in Atlanta, where she was the secretary in the news department at the Atlanta ABC affiliate. Uh, once upon a time, that was the kind of jobs that outstanding women journalists had to start out with at one point. Uh, she moved to NBC, transferred to Washington, D.C., covered the White House when Jimmy Carter came to town, uh, wrote a book called This is Judy Woodruff at the White House, which was published in 1982 worked on the Today Show before she went to what was then called the McNeil Lehrer News Hour, uh, hosted Frontline on PBS, uh, and has just uh, gone on to many things, worked at, at CNN as a news anchor for 12 years, and uh, uh, served as the senior correspondent anchor of the, their uh, weekday political program, Inside Politics. In 2007, she came back to PBS as a senior correspondent for the NewsHour, and now regularly co-anchors the program, which she just finished doing, and loyally and faithfully got into a car and amazingly got here at 8.30, uh, as she had promised to do. The traffic cooperated, which it doesn't always do. Uh, she, since 2006, she's also anchored a monthly program for Bloomberg Television called Conversations with Judy Woodruff. She's been a visiting fellow at the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the uh, Harvard uh, Kennedy School, visiting professor at Duke, and uh, so it goes. Her talk this evening is going to be about, it's titled Upside Down and Inside Out, the 2010 midterm election. Judy will speak to us, and then she and I will have a brief conversation, and then we'll take questions from the audience. There are two microphones, as usual and uh, Goucher students have priority in asking questions as usual as well. Please join me in welcoming Judy Woodruff. Thank you so much, Sandy, for that wonderful introduction. If you listen to what Sandy said, it sounds like I can't keep a job. Um, 
I am, I am so happy to be here with all of you tonight. I'm thrilled to be here as a new Goucher parent. It is so nice to be part of Goucher Nation. Uh, I'm getting used to calling Al the father of a gopher. Uh, our gopher, Lauren Hunt, is sitting on the front row, and I'm so happy she's here too. And I'm doubly glad to be here as somebody who has been hearing wonderful things about this school uh, for so many years. I just want to say a, a word of thanks to Sandy Unger, who has superbly led this school for the last nine plus years. He has helped to bring it to an even greater place of distinction uh, than it already occupied when he took over. And from my personal perspective, he's a role model who proves journalists can amount to something. Now, Sandy uh, asked me to talk tonight, as he said, about the midterm elections. I love, he actually suggested that title, and I said, that sounds good. I'll try to come up with something that fits that. Um, and, and frankly, since all of us who cover politics are fixated right now on these midterm elections, uh, I'm, I'm happy to jump in and, uh, and take a whack at it. Uh, in fact, I'm so fixated, I went to Wisconsin last weekend, spent three days there, between Green Bay and Milwaukee and Madison and other points, and uh, came back because they're having a surprisingly competitive Senate race in Wisconsin, and came back with a cold that maybe you can hear uh, that I'm not quite over, so if my voice gives out, we're just gonna end a little bit early. Um, I thought I would make remarks for about 15 minutes or so, and then, uh, as Sandy said, we're gonna open it up for questions. And just to get us started, clearly the Tea Party is the story of this election. And other than anti-government spending, a big part, as you may know, of the Tea Party plank is a crackdown on immigration, with a number of their candidates calling for English only in the, in the schools. Now, what they don't know is that this is not a new issue. Back in the 1930s in Texas, a woman named Ma Ferguson was running for governor she was the widow of Pa Ferguson. <laughs> and she traveled all over the state, stumping for English only, arguing with unassailable logic. She said, I figure if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for <laughs> Texas school children. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other side of the political equation, we have President Obama, who faces a mountain of debt and deficits. Uh, you may not have heard, but he's actually about to unveil a new approach to dealing with the deficit, uh, with the budget. He said he's actually going to embrace a Ronald Reagan approach uh, to the $1.3 trillion deficit. Uh, somebody asked him the other day if he was worried about how big it is, and uh, President Obama, he quoted the Gipper, he said, no, I figure it is so big, it's gonna take care of itself. <laughs> so, so where do things stand uh, uh, as of October the 8th? Democrats know there are only 25 days left until November 2nd, and somebody described them to me the other day as as nervous as John Edwards at a paternity test. So enough of the body humor, I apologize. I'm just gonna pose two themes for you this evening about the election and then we can have a little fun with the conversation 
later. Number one, I think this election is likely to have a very similar outcome to 1994, even though this year, 2010, is a very different political landscape. And number two, if political parties were equities, I would buy the GOP brand short term. Look at what we're facing. But I would ask some tough questions about its value long term. Let me explain. As of today, the most likely outcome, three and a half weeks from now, the Republicans will win a majority in the House of Representatives. They will pick up at least seven or eight seats in the United States Senate, falling just short of control, and they will win control of as many as 30 of the 50 governorships. They hold 23 of them today, including taking over major states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and maybe Ohio. Conversely, they could lose control in California and in the state of Florida. Now these latter races, along with the state legislative contests that go along with them, are of central consequence to American politics. This is a census year, which means redrawing congressional and legislative districts takes place next year. If Republicans score as well as most experts believe likely, they could gain as many as a dozen seats in a redistricted Congress. Now that's gonna be on top of whatever happens in the next election. Their conditions will be more favorable for them because of these redrawn districts. On the surface, that looks a lot like 1994 under another first time Democratic, first term, I should say, Democratic president. But going into that election, voters had pretty good feelings about Republicans. The favorability ratings for the, for the Republican Party were in, the, were in the 40s, even sometimes the low 50s. Today, the Republicans are in even worse shape in the polls than the Democrats. Uh, when you ask about what do you think about this party, uh, the Republican Party, what do you think about the Democratic Party? Republican Party favorability ratings today are in the 20s. So why do we think they're gonna do so well on November the 2nd? Because so many people are full of anxiety and anger, as all of us know very well, over the economy, with a sense that Wall Street was bailed out and Main Street was stiffed. That with, and with great fears about whether this economy is gonna to return to normal, we're all worried about that, and worried about what it is gonna be like for their children. That, too, is what distinguishes this year from 16 years ago, when there was some unhappiness with the economy then, but with unemployment back then still below 6%, few people at that time thought we might be entering an era like Japan in the 1990s, sluggish as far as the eye can see. In this mood, more than a few independent voters are brushing aside the idea of choices and they are casting a protest vote, is what they're telling the pollsters, against the status quo. Republicans, what are they saying? They are mad, and they're energized, and they are saying they are gonna turn out in big numbers. Democrats, meanwhile, this year are dispirited. And despite last-minute efforts to turn out the Democratic vote among young people, among African Americans, labor, the other traditional Democratic voting groups, turnout will definitely drop off from the enthusiastic levels in 2008. Now, if the voter profile on November 2nd 
in any meaningful way does resemble what it was two years ago, the Democrats could manage to hold on to a healthy margin in the House. They could hang on to 55 seats in the United States Senate and a majority of the state houses. But the educated guessing, again, as of October the 8th, and that's what all we know is, what do we know as of today, is that it is gonna be a decidedly more Republican and a more conservative voter profile. And by the way, today's unemployment numbers didn't uh, do much good for the Democrats. You saw the number came out, the rate stayed the same, but the, but the job loss uh, was 95,000 in the month of September. So now looking ahead, if the GOP takes control of at least one House of Congress, they will not be able to, which they say they want to do, repeal the health care reform law, repeal financial regulatory reform, or enact uh, what has come to be known as Wisconsin Republican Congressman Paul Ryan's sweeping agenda to partially privatize Social Security and Medicare. But it is going to make a huge, they may not be able to do those things, but it's going to make a huge difference in several areas if it happens. Number one, it could create some government funding nightmares for President Obama in providing the necessary money to implement parts of the health care reform bill. The Republicans are out there talking about defunding health care legislation or defunding or not funding, I should say, the enforcement elements of financial regulation and with the power of subpoena, which they would have if they're in the majority in just one house. Officials like Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner might want to run a cot on Capitol Hill because some people think he could be hauled up there uh, uh, repeatedly uh, under a Republican majority. In the Senate, even if Republicans are not in the majority, they are still going to have veto power over appointments. Uh, that, that require confirmation, particularly judges, and the ability to block any Obama initiatives. And we've already seen this. It's just going to be even more so uh, if they increase their numbers. The outlook, in other words, and this comes as no news to anyone in this room, is for gridlock. Uh, uh, many people say they welcome that. That's what we need. We don't want anything done under this president. That's the view that many Americans have. But I suspect that when the scope of the country's problems become clearer, as they will, as time goes by, that that view is going to begin to change. And I would just also say as a quick aside that, that one of the outrages of this campaign is the total absence of any discussion or debate about foreign policy or national security. <coughs> there are 100,000 Americans in Afghanistan today. Excuse me, I'm going to take some water. <laughs> 100,000 Americans in Afghanistan at an annual cost of 119, <coughs> I'm sorry, <coughs> just bear with me. cost of $119 billion, and some 500 of those troops are likely going to lose their lives this year. And nobody, hardly anybody, Democrat or Republican, is talking about it in this campaign. If you read Bob Woodward's new book, you're going to come away with a strong sense 
that this is a mission that needs to be debated and that there are not many good options. And finally, why with the election outlook and the enormous problems that are, continue, that are gonna to continue to plague this president, would I question the value of Republican stock long-term, as I did a moment ago? It's because presidential elections start to frame choices, not simply protests, which is what we're seeing in this midterm election year. America faces in this next presidential election, we know it's coming in 2012, enduring the enduring domestic challenge of jobs, of debt, and we all know that, and the, the, the information about jobs and debt and the other tough problems we face are only gonna become clearer as we get closer to 2012. Today, the Republican alternatives that seem attractive just because they're anything other than what is happening from this White House, they not, may not seem as appealing uh, as they do today. To propose tax cuts for corporations, investors, and upper income taxpayers, whatever the economic arguments, while proposing to slash spending for secondary and elementary education and Pell Grant loans for college students, and cutting health research and assistance to state and local governments for police and firemen. And by the way, this is on top of teachers and other state employees losing their jobs today, daily, is surely going to encounter voter questioning and voter skepticism as we get closer to voters making a choice in 2012. Ultimately, the deficit problem can only be addressed, and everybody knows this who studied it, by reining in the growth of entitlements, Social Security and Medicare, which many Democrats say is politically unacceptable, and increasing revenues, which Republicans say is a non-starter. For all the good intentions of the Deficit Commission headed by very able co-chairs, former White House Chief of Staff Erskine Bowles and former Republican Senator uh, Alan Simpson, and due to make out, they're supposed to issue their report on December the 1st, the only way to address this long-term chronic problem is likely to be when they are forced to by the financial markets. In other words, that's a euphemism for a market crash, something nobody wants to see. I also believe, and I've done a lot of reporting on the younger generation, I worked on a, a couple of documentaries for PBS and the news hour after I left CNN and before I came back to the news hour full time. I believe the Republicans, when it comes to the issues that matter a lot to this generation, in some instances are on the wrong side of these issues. The wrong side of where America is headed on issues of tolerance, racial diversity, gay rights, and immigration. We are becoming a, a population and an electorate of greater diversity and color as a look at our younger generation tells us, one in every five of this younger generation has a parent born outside the United States. One in every eight of them was himself or herself born outside the United States. On many of these issues, immigration, gay rights, tolerance, diversity, the majority of Republicans, meanwhile, are going in the other direction. The gay rights and the gay marriage issue has helped Republicans and conservatives in past elections. I think that's changing. I think my children, and I suspect your children, 
uh, don't know why it is such a big deal as it is uh, in, uh, in so much of our political environment. So I'm not sure where all of this leads us, and I'm not sure what the body politic is going to look like several years from now, uh, but it is going to be fascinating to watch, important for all of us citizens uh, to pay attention to, uh, uh, fun for journalists, I guess you could, I guess you could say, uh, but the most important thing, uh, are we going to be watching a process that is going to lead to the answers and to the solutions that the citizens of this country deserve? That's why we all need to be paying the kind of close attention that I know that all of you are. Thank you very much, and I look forward to answering questions with Sandy and all of you. Judy, thank you very much, and, and thank you again for making the extraordinary effort to get off, coming right off the air and get here to Goucher to be with us. I apologize about the voice. No, no, it's, uh, we apologize to you for, for the effort necessary. I think this one will be, yeah, sorry. Um, Testing. We'll, we'll just uh, talk about a couple things, I think, before we'll welcome questions, and the students know they should line up at the microphones when they're ready. Uh, students first and then, and then others. Um, you know, an outsider looking in could easily say that the American public has belayed, be behaved in an irrational manner politically. That two years ago, everybody was so wild for Barack Obama, he won in such a big way, seemed to have such a mandate, and just two years later, uh, everything has fallen apart. Um, does this lead you to question whether that his... To question the sanity of the American people? Well, yeah, you could say that. Or to question the sincerity of his victory. You know, the, was it just a, 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 a passing phenomenon? Did it not, was it not a sincere turnabout? Barack Obama was an exciting candidate who came along at a time when the American people and when I say American people, I mean many, most American people were upset about the war in Iraq, upset about many of the policies of the Bush administration, and had various grievances and gripes about what they were seeing. They were looking for a different kind of leader. And, and after all, we are a country with, um, we're a demanding voter population, and we have a short attention span as well. So you put all that together, he ran a great campaign, put up a tough fight against Hillary Clinton, uh, came in as, the, you know, he was a giant killer because he beat the senator who everybody had assumed was going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. So he came in in a blaze of glory. And you're right, people thought, oh my gosh, he's going to come in, he's going to fix all of our problems, he's right. going to change the tone in Washington. Democrats and Republicans are going to be singing kumbaya and, and it's all going to work out. And that's what we wanted to believe. But the fact is, he, and I'm repeating what you've already heard, he inherited a terrible economy, uh, two wars, and you can argue with the, with the decisions that have been made, you can argue with the way they've been made, you can argue with the way they described uh, what they were trying to do with health care reform, you can argue with the way they communicated their policy, but when all is said and done, uh, it's tough to run this government 
this country, a government that is much more divided than people are willing to admit. And, and even for somebody as talented and skilled as Barack Obama, uh, it's, it hasn't been easy. And I will just say that there are some aspects, I think, of his governing style that have contributed to the problem. He's his, probably his, a little too cool for yes, his own good. Coolness, um, distance, detachment. And I think people, there are moments when people, they may not all, they may want all touchy-feely, huggy president, but there, but there are times when they want somebody who can empathize, and he seems sort of standoffish, and I think that's hurt as well. I, I've heard a few people begin to say that maybe Barack Obama will actually be able to work better with a Republican majority in the House and a, a, a perhaps a very tight Senate teetering on the brink between the two parties than he was able to do with the Democratic Congress. Do you think that's, there's a possibility there? That's the cynical view, and I do think it's a possibility. I guess could, that makes me a cynic or a skeptic um, because he'll have, they'll have somebody, they'll have a foil. They'll have somebody to argue against. I mean, they'll have an adversary. Now, you know, instead of, saying, instead of the Democrats having responsibility for all three for the House, the Senate, and the, uh, the White House. If they lose the House, it'll be a little bit easier to say, aha, the Blame Republicans them. didn't go along. So sure, there is the Democratic view that, yeah, we're better off if we lose. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton, House. in the end, got a fair amount done after he lost control of Congress in 1994. He did, and I, th and I think the Obama people have studied that very carefully, but, I, but, I, but under no illusions, I mean, we, as I just, I touched on some of the things that every, any president, whether it's Barack Obama or, you know, whoever is elected in 2012 or 2016 for that matter, is going to have to worry about debts deficit as far as the eye can see. And the decisions that are going to be required to address those things, I, didn't, I, I barely touched on uh, Afghanistan. It, um, it, you know, how, how can it be that Afghanistan's not even being talked about in this campaign? It's stunning. Well, for, I mean, if, if you look I mean, at people the, are dying, as you said. Well, there are there are Democrats on the on the at the left end of the political spectrum who are very frustrated with the war, but they're frankly holding their tongue right now to some extent because they want to they don't want to hurt their party going into these elections. I think no matter what happens in November, and and certainly as we get closer to next summer, you're going to hear louder and louder voices in the Democratic Party, especially. If, if the casualty rate continues to climb. But my prediction on, on Afghanistan is this. I do think the president is committed to that withdrawal date or the beginning of a withdrawal date next year. I don't, you know, the experts I talk to, I'm not an expert, but the people I talk to say they don't expect the situation to get much better because the entire uh, premise of our being there, this whole counterinsurgency strategy, is based on the idea that the Afghan people will take over the government and right. the fight against the Taliban. And meanwhile, this is a very corrupt and a very, if you, again, if you believe the experts, and an unstable system. So we're looking at a, at a, at a dicey, difficult uh, uh, war. And I think, I think Democrats, many of whom are uncomfortable with our being there, are going to make more noise about it, especially. Uh, one more question before we uh, welcome questions from students and other members of the audience. Um, Tea Party, have you, have you met people from the Tea Party who impress you and uh, 
make you think that uh, they're a real force to be reckoned with? I've met a number of Tea Party folks, and, and I'll just tell you most recently in Wisconsin, I interviewed uh, the, the founder of the uh, sort of multi-organizational Tea Party movement in Wisconsin, and they are absolutely certain that they are the force behind the Republican. It's very interesting what's happened in Wisconsin. I don't know that it's a microcosm of the whole country, but almost beneath the radar, the, the fellow who's, who's challenging Russ Feingold, Russ Feingold, who's considered a maverick Democrat, third-term Democratic senator running for his fourth term. Everybody assumed he was a shoe-in. Here he is, coasting to re-election, and about a year or so ago, a man named Ron Johnson, who's a very well-off plastics manufacturer, gets upset about spending in Washington, goes to a couple of Tea Party rallies, is asked to make a speech. They like the way he speaks. They ask him to think about running for the Senate. Today he is running ahead, seven points ahead in the last public poll of, of Russ Feingold. Right now, Ron Johnson, the Tea Party candidate, is favored. And he's done a very, Johnson, because he's had a lot of money, has brought in the Republican Party to run his campaign. So he's running a very smart campaign, very smart ads, spending millions of his own dollars. Plus, he's got the Tea Party movement turning out in droves. They're, they're hanging, uh, uh, what do you call them, door hangers on people's doors. They are marching in the streets, showing up at rallies. Uh, I think, you know, and we'll see what happens ultimately. Who knows? Maybe the, the progressive vote will, will come out. But, but, but the Tea Party doesn't have a program particularly. It's, a, it's sort of a well, just say no to what's happened before. But they would argue that's a program. I that, see. You know, yeah. that if you come to Washington and you can stop some of the spending on programs that they oppose, they would argue that that's, that's a, a program right. and that uh, they're committed to doing something about it. Good. We'll go to questions. And uh, uh, Sam, were you indicating that you wanted to ask a question? Oh, you were just waving hello. Okay. Uh, fine. We'll ask uh, anybody who pose the question to introduce himself or herself to Judy. Tell us who you are, where you're from, and uh, what you're studying at Goucher. Amy, you're up. Hi, I'm Amy LaBailey. I'm a senior biology major from Evanston, Illinois. And um, my question was, uh, with the recent uh, rallies, like Glenn Beck's and the upcoming Stuart Colbert's, I was wondering what these like mass gatherings have the impact on the political spectrum. I feel like that's sort of a newer thing and sort of bringing, if it's had an impact on the political spectrum? I think that's a very good question. It's, it's a brand new phenomenon, the notion that someone is coming out of the media and, take, and becoming such a powerful force, such a powerful voice in the political sphere. I mean, we've certainly seen people come from the media and run for office, mm -hmm. but for Glenn Beck, it's almost as if he's become the messiah for a, for a movement. His followers are very loyal to him. A lot of them think that he should run uh, for office. He professes not to have, I guess, not to have any interest. But when he pronounces somebody good or somebody bad or an idea good or bad, it has enormous influence. I think we in the media are trying as hard as we can to figure out how to report on these people and their influence um, and to connect them to the, the media, because the media platform they have is huge. The fact that he has a daily program on the most popular cable news channel mm -hmm. uh, and, and has his own, I guess, website. He's got his own corporation that he's set up. Uh, and then you mentioned Rush Limbaugh, who's become a force of his own. 
on radio. And, and there's really nothing like that on the left uh, to counter it. It's just sort of a, you know, a, a spot here or there. You'll hear about somebody who has a following. I think we're still trying to figure out how to deal with it, but it's very real. Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to underestimate the influence of, uh, of Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and, and the others uh, who profess to, to follow in their footsteps. Thank you. I must say, I don't know what we're going to do when Amy LaBailey graduates because for most of the last four years, she's always been the first person to ask a question. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, <laughs> Dashiell. Hi there. Uh, I'm Dashiell Fitchery. I'm from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. I'm a sophomore and a poli-sci major. Uh, my question is, today I read an article in the Washington Post uh, regarding social media and how it's been used in the Obama campaign in 08 on how many candidates this year have been trying to use it, but it's been kind of a flop. Uh, one example was uh, a candidate had said, I want all the bells and whistles that Barack Obama had in 08, and it, it hasn't been working out for him. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is it too many candidates to watch, or? It's interesting you should say, well, I, I have to confess, first of all, I didn't see that article, but I have tried to follow the, the coverage of the candidate's use of the social media. You're absolutely right. Obama and his people were masterful in 2008 in, uh, in going online and bringing, especially young voters, and getting, getting your generation involved through Facebook. I guess Twitter, Twitter was around in 2008, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and just all these creative and genius ways to, to bring in, especially, again, the younger generation. Everybody saw that. It actually started with Howard Dean in 2004. I mean, they really became, they were really the first to aggressively use uh, online. But I think the Obama people just mastered it and did very, very well. Everybody saw that, and now they're trying to copy it this year. And you're probably right. There's probably, again, I didn't see that article. My guess is that there's just so much of an effort, and I also think that young people are much more aware and, and probably much more intelligent than we give you credit for. You, you know when somebody's trying to get your vote, you know when it's a real friend who's trying to friend you on Facebook, and when it's a politician trying to get you to sign up to go to one of their rallies or to send in a donation, a contribution. So it's probably just people wising up to some extent. But I still think that there is, there's just a whole new, it's like we've opened up a new, um, uh, we've opened a new door and gone to a new level in political communication with social media. I think we, we can't even begin today to understand where it's going to be down the line. I just know that it's something new, it's important, and the candidates may be fumbling and struggling this year to figure out how to use it, but it's, it's, it's here to stay one, in one form or another. Thank you very much. Up here. Hi, my name is Alana Perlstein. I'm a freshman here at Goucher. Um, I wanted to. Where thank are you, you from? from um, originally from New Jersey. Great. <laughs> originally, okay. <laughs> Still am. Okay. I wanted to. Uh, I was interested in your um, remarks about the role that the Tea Party is playing in this election um, as sort of a new political movement that's been coming into place recently. Um, in addition, I've been learning about in my political science course here at Goucher about the wide scope of the government, and it's only increasing um, with every year and with every election. I was interested in hearing your thoughts, um, maybe in the future, 
if you think if our government if the scope of our government is only widening will we see more um, movements like the Tea Party and more things and if so will there be any um, would it be possible for any change to sort of um, decrease this um, ever continuing wide scope of government all right let me let me see if I understand your question because um, I, I think there was some distortion on the microphone. So you're asking, do I think there will be other movements like the Tea Party, or did I, did I misunderstand? Um, sort of a two-part question, yes, because um, our government is ever-expanding. Um, I wanted to hear that. And also, um, if you could think of any way to sort of change the turn of direction and, and downsize the wide scope of government. Oh, that's a very, very, very good question. I think that's on everybody's mind. I think if, if anybody could wave a magic wand and say, okay, <laughs> we don't need to pay all these taxes. We don't need to have big government doing so many things for us. There's got to be a better way. Um, the truth is it's somewhere in between what the worst criticisms are and what the best defenses are of the federal government. We obviously need a federal government to, to defend our country from attack to secure the borders, to uh, build the highways from one state to another. And if you read the Constitution, you know that there's powers that are enumerated to the federal government. So there are things that we count on the federal government to do. Take care of those. If you think about things like Medicaid, we've talked about Medicare, Social Security, uh, and on and on and on when it comes to education. There's so many things that we count on government at the federal and at the state and local level to do for us. And what the critics would have you believe is it would be much, much better if so much of this were taken over by the private sector. It would be, if, if we thought the private sector would do that, would take care of those in need, uh, as we believe, as you know, we are a compassionate country and we think people need help, food stamps, welfare, uh, again, I mentioned Medicaid, Medicare, then uh, we wouldn't need as much government, but clearly uh, there's, there's no proof, there's no positive way that we can, we can count on that kind of uh, support being there. And, and I think, but, but what we have in our democracy is this constant debate that goes on between, you know, those who say the government is the best place to get this done and those who say, no, it should be the private sector, and that's how those, those arguments get get worked out, and sometimes they get worked out more in the direction of letting the government do it, and sometimes more in the other direction. But, but the idea that we would dramatically reduce the role of the federal government is, is hard to, you know, as Sandy said, it's really hard to imagine, because defense costs so much. It is a giant part of our budget. If you look at the budget deficit, big part of it is military, it's defense. Another big part of it, frankly, is, is Medicare, Social Security pension that we pay people who've worked in government to retire. And you can have discussion until you're blue in the face about whether we ought to be doing those things, and we should have those discussions, but right now those are obligations that we have. And then you add onto that interest on the debt and so forth, and um, it's a tough question. I will tell you this, that what we need is your generation to care enough about these questions to get involved in politics and in government to help us figure them out because we can't go on like we are. We can't go on promising, you know, generous Social Security benefits for everybody uh, when 
the wherewithal to pay that just won't be there indefinitely. Some smart people have got to come together and work this out, and it's got to be at a, at a, you know, in a situation where people are able to work together. Today, our political system doesn't have that. People are at each other's throats. And so my hope is that for your generation, you will, <laughs> that, that you'll be able to work with people who disagree with you and come up with a compromise and a solution you know, that'll get us to a better place. So we're counting on your generation to do that. We'll try it's our a best. great Thank question. We, we intend to have quite a few Goucher graduates in Congress before long. And in the White House. That's right. Dennis. Hi, I'm Dennis Teagarden. I'm a junior from Ocean City, Maryland. I'm also president of the Goucher College Democrats. Um, one of the things we're doing is working on many, many campaigns from the local delegate level all the way up to governor and senator. And my question is, is our efforts paying off or has this election been decided as I think the media is trying to make out? This election has not been decided, but what, what I'm citing to you when I'm telling you what, I, what the experts say about what's gonna happen in the House and the Senate uh, and in the governor's races is based on public opinion polling, which is showing it's gonna be a tough year for Democrats. It doesn't mean there won't be surprises. Uh, right here in Maryland, I guess the polls right now show the Democratic incumbent, Governor Martin O'Malley, no, no, no. is ahead in the polls. Yes. For all we know, there could be a surprise on election day. It's, ultimately, it's up to the voters. Uh, the same thing with congressional races. There are races in this state where the Republicans are licking their chops and saying, we're gonna knock off that Democrat. Uh, uh, and maybe that won't happen. So that's why the efforts of, your, of groups like yours and groups like young Republicans and young conservatives and young liberals matter because you get people to vote. And ultimately, whatever reporters say, whatever Judy Woodruff says, whatever the pollsters say, people can go and do what they absolutely well please. And that's the way it ought to be. So you're right. Uh, it, sometimes it gets discouraging when the media is saying, okay, the House is lost. <laughs> the Senate, if you're a Democrat, the House is lost. The Senate's, you're going to lose some seats and so forth. You're going to lose uh, governor's seats. But it's up to you to prove the media wrong if you don't like the prediction. Anybody wants to help out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Judy, just to Thank press you. Dennis's question for a minute. Um, you know, there has been this sort of steady drumbeat that the Democrats are going to lose the House. It's because of the polls. And okay, I, so I will really I'll be the first one to tell polls. you, we are so hung up on the polls. Right. We watch them all the time. We go to every morning, we click on the political polling websites, and we look at that. Right. And it does shape the reporting of campaigns, and I think too much. But it's because the it can, rut that we're in. There can be a momentum to that prediction. That exactly. And I'll tell you, it's one reason why at the news hour, we don't talk so much about the polls. I'll right. pat the news hour on the back for just a second. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think you can get too driven by the polls, but you asked me tonight to come and talk about what the, what oh, the I, experts no, think. That's right. So that's what the experts that's right. think. But you can prove them wrong. David. Thank you. Uh, hello, my name is uh, David. I am, unlike you, from New Jersey, and I'm proud of it. I'd just like you to know that. Uh, <laughs> All right. And. Uh, <laughs> Well, the thing I like to bring up is something that seems to be... David, what is your major uh, at um, I'm undeclared at the moment, but I'm probably going into communications. And, uh, and you're a sophomore, is that right? Yeah, sophomore. Uh, thanks for telling me. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, something I'm wondering is that a lot of this seems to be traced back to Obama's oratory. It's like, it's, it goes without saying that he's always been a good orator, but uh, 
It seems that as his presidency has gone on, he's become a little more muddled in his message. Like early on, there was that moment where he said, uh, like, what was it, the AIG thing where he said, I decided to wait three days so I know what I'm talking about. But then it went to the speech at West Point where he was talking about withdrawing from Afghanistan. And no, that was a really muddled message. But it seems to me he is most eloquent right now when he is attacking the Republicans. Like the most recent cases, I'm sure a lot of you heard about that, where he compared them to the people who draw, drove the economy into a ditch and now want the keys back. I wonder how many of you heard that, but he's, he's most eloquent when he's attacking the Republicans, and how do you expect that to uh, play into the election? Well, I think you put your finger on something very interesting. Um, I actually hadn't heard it phrased quite the way you did, but that was, that was actually some interesting, uh, smart analysis. Um, the, the, the issues that the president has to talk about are tough. They're sticky, they're complicated, and it's tough sometimes to take an absolute position, black or white, all the way to the left, all the way to the right, uh, on an issue like Afghanistan, where you're trying to do the right thing, but you don't want to upset the apple cart, and you, don't, and you, you want to make sure you stay in, the, in a course where you don't lose your critics on the right and your critics on the left. When you're president, in other words, and you're trying to get things done, you're talking about policy. I think you, you mentioned Afghanistan, you mentioned some other issues. It's tough being president. Uh, but, and yet these guys, they, women, they go after the job, so they know it's going to be tough. But once they get there, they find out you can't just say the simple things you could say on the campaign trail. Where it, You're right, it's so easy to criticize the other side and talk about driving the economy into the ditch. President Obama probably is more comfortable saying uh, making comments about politics in that regard than he is about some of these issues because the issues uh, are complex. Um, and maybe that says something about, you know, him. Maybe he's a better, you know, maybe being a candidate was something that brought out his, uh, you know, his, as you say, his oratorical skills. I think it will serve the Democrats well uh, that it, because you do see him getting energized right now. Um, but frankly, I think some of the ideas that are out there in the minds of the voters are set. So even if you're an independent voter and you're upset about big government spending right now and you're sick of hearing Washington uh, talk about health care reform when you really wanted them to find a way to bring back uh, 8 million jobs, I don't think hearing the president say some of these things, I'm not sure that's going to change your mind. It may get some Democrats out to vote. And frankly, I think that's part of part of what it's designed to do. So you expect so, it to work out more in the long but term? But it's a good, it's a very good question, talking about the president's, uh, the, the use of his language, how he speaks, and when he chooses to get tough. So you're expecting it to work out more in the long term, is what you're saying? I'm sorry? Uh, you're expecting it to work out more in the long term, or? To what to work uh, out? The way his the energy, the energy he's been getting lately from the anger he's been... I think that's that's hard to predict. I mean, I think I think he will. I think he will. He already has energized some Democrats. They're turning out. They're now registering to vote. I saw some statistics just today that showed that there is some Democratic voter registration is up. There's some excitement, but it's in pockets. So we'll have to see if it if it turns up uh, anything real on November second. Thank you. Thank Billy. you very much. Hi, uh, I'm Billy Weiss. I'm a senior here, uh, communications major from Lutherville, Maryland. And um, I know you mentioned the young and editor of our newly yeah. improved student newspaper, the Quindecan. Yeah, that was actually kind of along the line, thanks, of my question. Um, 
you mentioned the younger generation. What about younger journalists? Um, I speak for the, the other editors and my staff here on the paper. Um, what are the, the types of skills that we should be learning, or, or more importantly, what should we be focusing on, or what should our frame of mind be going into the future? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for uh, thinking about journalism and, and wanting to consider journalism as a profession, because all of you who, who are here, who are interested in, in journalism, because we are going through a really tough transformation of our own right now, uh, and none of us knows what we're going to look like at the end of this. What I say when young people ask me about going into journalism is, frankly, uh, first of all, uh, to be ready to do anything. Because what used to be pretty clearly delineated, well, you were going to write for a newspaper, or you were going to go into radio, or you were going to go into television, today it's all mushed together. Everything is, if you're a writer, uh, those skills are necessary as a writer in television, radio, online, and print. Uh, and and uh, television, projecting on, on television, having communication, verbal communication skills. It's not, I know newspaper reporters who had to learn how to project on camera online. So every, all of these skills become important. You may want to stress one or another, uh, but, but they all become important. What we want are smart, curious, uh, young people who want to work hard, who care about this country and care about uh, the issues the country is facing, who uh, frankly want to, you know, make sure that other, the rest of the, you know, the rest of the electorate, the citizens of this country know what's going on. Um, and what I tell, again, what I tell young people is read as much as you can, uh, be a, a generalist, study everything you can that you're interested in, uh, and when it comes right down to it, know that the business you're going into is changing and it may look nothing like what it looks like today. Um, I, don't, you, I don't want you. To, I want you to cover your ears when I say this, but a few thousand journalists have been laid off, reporters, in the last few years. So we are going through a tough time, but uh, I'm confident we're going to come through this, and and uh, and it's only going to be because of young people like you uh, that we're going to we're going to have a great media, a great journalistic uh, 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 establishment. Is that a good word uh, in the future? So thank you for your interest and for your question. Thank you. Ramon. My name's Ramon, uh, senior political science major from New Jersey. Uh, got New Jersey's taking <laughs> Yeah, New Jersey's big tonight. <laughs> yeah, I got, there's, a, there's a bunch of us, I guess. Um, you you uh, mentioned that the, uh, we, we were talking that, that, um, that there is a lack of discussion in terms of dealing with things like the entitlement programs uh, in terms of debt and uh, the deficit in the future. Do you think that with movements like the Tea Party and the pushback from the health care reform bill that this is actually like, possible for that discussion to happen, that this political will for it to happen before we actually reach that point where we have to because the markets say you can't borrow anymore? Uh, you're pushing me to, uh, <laughs> to be more specific than I was. Is that what you're doing, Ramon? Okay. Um, and, and that is a, is a very, very good question. I think um, if, it really does depend on what happens on November 2nd. If the Republicans win control of the House, which again is the conventional wisdom that they will, um, they are going to push back on anything that the Obama administration, they're already pushing back, but they're going to push back even harder. So there is going to be gridlock coming uh, down the line. Big decisions are going to be put off 
and, as I, and I did mention, there's going to be efforts to defund health care reform, elements of health care reform that, that can't really go forward without funding. And the Republicans will have the ability, if they have sufficient numbers, uh, to, to, to put a damper on that. There's just no question about that. Uh, same thing with financial regulatory reform. They'll have the ability to slow down some of the elements of that and, and a number of other things. But the real changes would come, I think, after 2012, uh, and nobody's asked me about this. I do think Barack Obama is, is uh, likely to seek re-election. We don't know who the Republican candidate's going to be, but if the Republicans were to win the White House and two houses of Congress in 2012, you certainly would see some attempts to cut back. Uh, but at the same time, as I mentioned a minute ago, the really, really tough questions have to do with those popular programs, Social Security, Medicare, retirement programs that nobody wants to cut. Democrats say they're sacrosanct. We're not going to touch those. Meanwhile, Republicans say we're not going to raise taxes. Nobody wants to raise taxes. Um, but we can't go on like we are. So the hope is that people of goodwill will be able to sit around a table, come to some uh, agreement uh, that, that, that meets the needs of most people, but everybody's going to have to give something. Everybody's going to have to give in a little bit. That's what compromise is all about, and that's what isn't happening right now. Right now, it's as if we have this dividing line in Washington. You have one side on, uh, uh, facing the other across this divide, shooting at each other, figuratively speaking, um, and nobody's talking. Nobody's solving problems. So the hope is that things get, I guess, uh, bad enough <laughs> that people feel they have to talk to each other. Um, and, and, uh, or maybe there will be some figure who will come along and persuade everybody that we have to, you know, we have to work out our problems. It can't go on like this. But it's, it's a good, good question. Thank you. Bob? Hi, I'm Robert Lewand. I teach mathematics here. been doing that for a number of years. Uh, my question is sort of lighthearted. It has nothing to do with politics, but rather with the news hour. Uh-oh. My wife and I watch the show every day, sometimes twice a day. But we especially Wait a minute. We're only on once. No, 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock. Oh, channel 22, good. channel 22. In case you missed something. Right, right. Uh, we especially look forward to Fridays because that's when Mark Shields and David Brooks go at each other. And uh, we think that they're both highly intelligent, they come from vastly different viewpoints, and yet they're so civil to each other. My question is, my wife and I ask ourselves this question every Friday, after the show is taped, do they go out and have a drink together or do they really get onto each other's skin? <laughs> uh, I don't know if they go have a drink together, but I will tell you because I don't ask them about their personal life, but I, I do know that they are, they are good friends. They come, they both come an hour or so before the show, they talk, they chat, and they chat after. So even when, and tonight, I will tell you, they had a very, they had a serious disagreement on the program, which I assume you didn't see because you were here getting ready for this. I saw uh, Over the, this, the outside money that is pouring into mostly Republican races. Um, the so-called, uh, well, the outside groups that frankly have been made possible, uh, big money has been made possible by the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. Um, and Mark Shields took the position that this money is, uh, is uh, that, that that court decision is responsible for corrupting American politics today, that it is undermining the spirit of democracy and what elections are supposed to be about, whereas David Brooks uh, said money doesn't make that much difference, 
you know, people, people uh, are passionate in this election, and no matter how much money spent, it won't have that much, uh, it won't have that much of an effect. So they had a, just a diametrically different, and they were starting to go at it, and the producer was telling me in my ear, you've got 30 seconds. <laughs> and so uh, they, were, they were getting more and more spirited, and I had to say, we're going to have to finish this another time. Thank you. But to answer your question, um, they respect each other, they're fond of each other, and uh, they're just remark two remarkable people. The thing about David and Mark that I think is, is just so interesting is that, yes, Mark is a liberal Democrat, David is a conservative Republican, but their views are not knee-jerk. I mean, they both think about each, each issue, they think about what they believe and what they want to say, and so when you listen to them, you learn something. They don't just spout whatever the party line is, they've thought about what they believe. And so I learn something from them every week, and all of us on the program look forward to them. Thank well, you. Like you, they're a treasure to the show. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Is there a question up here? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, my name is Shoshana Riesenfeld, uh, mom of freshman Aaron, uh, undeclared major music minor. <laughs> but uh, I'm from, we're from California. And we keep reading that uh, Brown and Boxer are gaining on Whitman and Fiorino uh, so that it's more and more of a toss-up. And that the same kind of thing uh, is happening in, in Nevada with Harry Reid. Do you find this to be a reasonable conclusion? And is it, if so, is it a valid or appearing in any other states? Uh Another good question, and I can tell you I'm an expert now on California because we had a report tonight on the news hour on the California governor's race, and, uh, and I've been reading up on the Senate race because I'm about to go out there in a couple of weeks to cover it. As of today, uh, Governor Brown, former Governor Brown, is ahead of Meg Whitman. Uh, there was a, uh, she spent $120 million of her own money, mostly I guess of her own money, uh, but it, it, it's, it's a fascinating campaign because she came out of being a very successful CEO at, at eBay. And people thought, I think the early thinking was, that she was just going to clean his clock. And, and that hasn't happened. He's been a surprisingly scrappy campaigner at, the, at the tender age of, what is he, 70? But isn't it an amazing thing to see Jerry Brown back? It, it, it's amazing. And <laughs> because tonight in the story, they were showing Makes pictures of him. Makes me feel young. When he, well, when he ran for, for governor the first time, he was, I don't know, 28 or something. And right. now he's, you know, it's 50 years later, 40 years later. Uh, but as of today, he's running ahead. And in the Senate race, you're right, it's also the case that as of today, Barbara Boxer is, uh, is ahead. But that's, that's a little, it's been a little bit closer. They're two very different campaigns, uh, very interesting, biggest state in the country, fascinating politics always in California. Um, your Governor Schwarzenegger can tell you that it looks a whole lot easier, looks a lot easier to govern than it actually is, uh, and he's, he's about to go out of office. Nevada, Harry Reid is in a tough, uh, tough, very tough race with Sharon Engel, the Tea Party candidate there in Nevada. Um, that one, I think, is, is, is even harder to call than, than the California Senate race. A lot of people think Sharon, there are Republicans in Nevada who are supporting uh, uh, Harry Reid, the Democrat because they think she's too far right. But, but we'll see, there's a lot of energy, a lot of Tea Party energy in Nevada. And uh, I think that's true all over the country, state by state. There are states, my colleague Gwen Eiffel just came back from Kentucky. She found a lot of Tea Party energy there behind Rand Paul. And so it's looking very likely that he's gonna win. But 
We don't know. We'll see. Yes. Judy. My name is Cindy Boraway, and I'm from New Hope, Pennsylvania, and I have a question to ask you. Sarah Palin, what do you think her influence is in 2010, and what do you see her influence is in 2012? Excuse me. Sandy may have to answer this question. Um, I think she's been the most successful Republican around in 2010. She's a phenomenon unto herself, <coughs> has exceeded expectations. People thought people were ready to write her off as <coughs> a kook, <coughs> and she's, I'm gonna have to stop talking. <coughs> I think she could run in 2012, and if she does, you'd have to take her seriously. I do. That's right. Well, maybe we'll ask that this next question be a little longer to give Judy a break. Uh, uh, I also am a parent of a freshman. My name is Terry Wallman. I'm from Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, you already talked a little bit about my question, and I'm, I hope your voice doesn't run out before you can add something to this. Uh, I'm very interested in the impact of money coming in as a result of the Supreme Court decision, Citizens United versus FEC. And uh, I, I'm wondering, I'm sorry, I'm wondering what you think the impact is are going to be, since an enormous amount of money and a very unusual ratio was going to one side versus the other, and if that one side that gets more money prevails, what's the likelihood that there are going to be regulations to come down to bring back some sort of control over money coming into campaigns right before elections and primaries uh, and from unidentified sources? This, this is unprecedented. <laughs> Let me tell you what I think the big problem is. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't agree with the George Wills of the world who say uh, it doesn't uh, really matter how much money there is in politics. It's not because of the money per se. It's because of the amount of time it takes to raise that money when I think candidates could be better spending it thinking about issues or talking to people about real problems. But what, what, what really has occurred now with that Supreme Court decision, I tell you my great criticism of the court is not too many liberals or too many conservatives. There's not a single member of that court who's ever faced a voter, ever, ever. Some of the greatest justices we ever had in the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, Hugo Black, others, were former politicians. I want a couple politicians on that court, not just judges, not just Ivy League judges, not just Northeastern Ivy League judges, which is what that court is totally comprised of uh, now. And I think what's happened with that decision is we're back to where we were pre-Watergate. In a sense, it's money we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know who's giving it. We don't know what they're getting in return for it. We don't have any idea, and that's bad. There is absolutely, you can argue about levels of money and campaign finance rules. I don't think there is an argument over transparency. I don't think there's any harm. Uh, by having things be totally transparent, and that's what the Chamber of Commerce and others have fought. And I think we're going to pay a huge price. It won't matter this year, but there will be a scandal just as sure as I am here tonight sometime in the near future because of the lack of transparency. Uh, we'll take a couple more questions and we'll leave local option as to who answers, depending on how Judy's feeling. Judy, I'm sorry that we're uh, putting upon your voice at this point. Yes. I'm hoping.
hoping I get a pass because I passed you the cough drops. <laughs> I'm uh, Ruth Terry Sipos. I'm from Louisiana. And I guess perhaps because of where I live, I think of this question because it is so disconcerting to me of the level of pushback against Barack Obama. And my question is, is it because he's African-American? Is there a piece of that? Where I'm from, it feels that way mightily. Is that something that is a national trend? I think that's, that's a question that's difficult to answer. Um, and you know, you can go to pollsters because they try to poll on this question and it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get honest answers from people about race because no one wants to admit that they have feelings, negative feelings towards somebody else because of their race or ethnic uh, background, or very few people do. Um, having said that, there's no doubt that race is a part of what is going on but I don't think it's the only thing. I do think there is just, I think back to when Bill Clinton came into office in 1992, there was such pushback against, there was almost, a, I mean, I would remember talking to Republicans who just felt it was an illegitimate presidency, that, that he didn't belong in the White House. And there is just, it's, it's almost since, like in the late 1980s and early 1990s, you hear from, one party or another, and, and I hear it more from Republicans, that, that they just feel that some of the Democrats who have ascended to the White House don't belong there, don't, it, it, do you remember the, the talk that, that Bill Clinton, uh, this is before any of the scandal that happened later, uh, that George H.W. Bush had honored the White House, but that uh, Bill Clinton was treating it differently, and 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 ever since then, I, I you hear this kind of conversation, and and so Bill Clinton, white, I, that wasn't a racist thing. I think I just think there's a visceral reaction like, be, between the two parties, uh, an animus that exists in our in our modern day politics that didn't used to be that way. I came to Washington in 1977 and Al and I have talked about this. You would go out to dinner and you'd be with Republicans and Democrats. And today it almost never happens. It, it, Republicans and Democrats not only don't go to dinner together, they don't social they don't go to have a cup of coffee together. They go home on the weekends to their districts. Um, they, they convene in their caucuses, their party caucuses. They never see each other. Their wives and children don't know each other. And again, it's like the enemy. It's like shooting a, a, at each other across a divide. And I think when the, when the adversarial party, when the other political party is viewed as other rather than you know, someone who's like me but who happens to disagree with me, then these kinds of feelings can come to the fore. And I think, I think what's happened is that that, that element of the anti-Obama feeling that is maybe race-based race has been allowed to bubble up because of that sense of he's the other, he's strange, he's different. And uh, I, 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 I will also tell you that I think, and this is something Sandy and I referred to a minute ago, I think Obama, to some extent, has maybe not taken advantage of his ability to soften some of that by reaching out to people and and opening up more and, and being more comfortable opening up to people. I think there is a coolness there that does not always serve him well. Sometimes it's, 
it's important to be cool and to be distant and to be removed, but there are times when the American people want their president to, to open up to them, and I think he's missed some opportunities to do that. Go here, yes. Thank you very much. My name is John Albright. I'm from Maine. I have a freshman here. Um, Judy, in the old days, in the good old days, I opened up the newspaper and there was a page called Opinion, and that was the editorial page, and that's where you read the opinion, and all the rest of the newspaper was fact. It's a little disconcerting, disconcerting these days on cable news or cable channels when you see a talking head and the credentials is blogger. So the question is, um, how do you reconcile the difference between the growth of opinion as it guides public thinking and action versus journalistic fact? It's, uh, it's the way we are headed. <laughs> um, I, it's almost as if I woke up one morning, or we all woke up one morning, and we were surrounded by opinion. I, clearly, it, cable television has led the way, but enthusiastically, uh, in its wake have come online, uh, blogs, and <clears throat> all manner of other opinion. We now swim in a sea of information and opinion all day long. Some of it is infuriating to us, and yet it opens up a whole new uh, op array of opportunities of learning information. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm of, I am honestly of two minds about it because it, it disturbs me greatly that, that this opinion, I think, is helping to pull this sort of hyper opinion in our media. Is, is deepening the polarization in, in American political life. I really believe that's what's happened. I think, I think people gravitate, you know, people wake up in the morning and think, okay, I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a liberal, I wanna read what the liberal opinion writers are, I'm, I'm, or I'm conservative, and never the twain shall meet. Um, and is that really what we want? Do we just wanna sort of go into our corners and? and yell at each other or shoot at each other all day? Um, uh, I hope not, but that seems to be where we're headed. You know, we are, as a country, I mean, Sandy knows this far better. I mean, he's the one who should be answering this question about the history of journalism. We started out as a country with opinion journalism. There was a yellow journalism in the earliest days of this nation. We've, we developed into a country with a free press and with a press that was, had a lot of reporting uh, behind what you saw in the newspapers and on television. But, but that almost seems to be in the distant past now as we gravitate more and more toward, uh, toward opinion. And I lament it, but I don't know, I mean, I'd like to know your opinion. How do we turn the clock back? To, or do we? Do we just go with the flow? I, I think it's going to be very difficult. And I, I think it is one of these things where it's going to have to get worse before it gets better. And, and a new some, you know, there are people in a few cities who are trying to buy newspapers and run them as nonprofit foundation operations. It may be naive, but may be worth trying to see if they can survive. I mean, in this, this city has one very weak newspaper left, and uh, it's, it's, it's a tragedy to see that happening. So that, this, this is one of the places where there are people trying to buy the sun to run it in a 
non-profit manner. It's an already a non-profit. The question is whether it, whether it can be. I mean, report, it's, it's just, it, this is clearly a time of, of just enormous transition, and we don't know what, as I was saying to that young man who asked me earlier, we don't know what, we're gonna, what it's going to look like in years to come. I'm, again, I'm, I keep saying I'm counting on the younger generation to solve. They're going to solve the debt problem. They're going to figure out the media. All of you young people out there, we're counting on you. So you're getting a great education here at Goucher. <laughs> You're going to be the ones who figure it all out. Judy, we'll, ask, we'll take this one last question, then I'm going to declare it's bedtime for you, so you can get better. Hi, yeah. I'm Monica Mainville. I'm a freshman from New Jersey. I'm possibly a communications major. Uh, you mentioned Wisconsin, excuse me, as possibly being a microcosm of the current U.S. political mood. Do you have any comments on our new governor in New Jersey, Chris Christie, and his resolve and success tackling some very tough issues and going up against the powerful teachers' union. Very interesting figure, your new governor, Chris Christie. I haven't met him, but I've read a little about him and certainly followed what he's been saying. He, you're right, he's taken some very tough decision, has cut decisions, has cut the education budget, has made the teachers' union and other unions angry because of some of those cuts. He has become a darling in the Republican Party. He's being invited to speak all over the country. Some are talking about him as a presidential candidate uh, among the Republicans in 2012. Um, it's, I, I think it's just, it's something to watch. I think he's, uh, he's somebody who, you know, people didn't expect him to win, and, uh, and he did, and he's made changes. He's, he's done what he said he was gonna do, at least to this point. He, I think he's had to make some compromises, but, uh, but if, if New Jersey is any kind of an incubator, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But he's, he's actually a very interesting figure for you to bring up. I'm glad you've got a lot of New Jersey uh, natives here at Goucher. Thank you very much for a good question. Judy, uh, thank you very much. We have a little something for you from Goucher before we... Uh,